Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, a show that gives you the approximate time of day and my name, all in one title. Nice to have you with me today. I'm looking forward to today's show. Rob Blue is going to be joining me in just a minute. And Dr. Gary Borgon will be in as well for this first hour. So uh, that's going to be how we're going to get things started today. I've, uh, as usual, got my Bible open because it's always a good place to start. And now it closed. So I had this great verse for you. Now it disappeared. Well, I'll get it for you later. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Everything is electronic now, so I've got everything on my uh, laptop, my laptop screen, and they all went away. So, all right, it'll be back uh, in no time. And with me in it right now is the executive editor of the Daily Signal, Rob Bluey, my regular guest on Tuesday. Rob, welcome. Hey, it's great to be back. Thanks for having me, Bill. Yeah, and I know the Coronavirus Commission that's um, that's not meeting anymore. Is that right? Well, it's not meeting, but the report and the recommendations are, are still quite active and, uh, and and things that we are promoting aggressively. As, right. Uh, as the cases have surged across the country, I think uh, now is an important time to, to take a look back at uh, what this group of experts put together earlier this year, because well, let's face it, uh, governments of all levels, uh, both the federal government, state governments and local governments, still have a long ways to go um, in terms of uh, the lessons that they can learn and uh, and the steps they can take to to, to protect individuals. But, but Bill, we've said from the very beginning, uh, this isn't just about uh, the government and what it can do. This is really about personal responsibility and each American uh, doing their part to help stop the spread and keep others safe. And so I think that it really starts uh, at home with the family, uh, with, uh, with your friends, uh, being responsible. Uh, and some of the things that we know work are keeping socially distanced from other individuals, uh, those particularly those who you might not know or haven't been around. Uh, wearing a mask uh, when you're you're out in public, particularly mm-hmm. in crowded places, and uh, and and again, um, <laughs> I think uh, you know the power of prayer, Bill. Uh, Amen. You know, it's uh, you, you started the show with that, and I think it's something that we all need to to do. Yeah, I I know there's um, going to be a lot of new restrictions put on people. They're going to be suggested or mandated. I'm not sure w- which it is. But when it comes to holidays, like, uh, you know, wonderful family gatherings like Thanksgiving, I know they are um, requesting that you keep the crowd size kind of small, which, you know, works for me because that just means more food for me. <laughs> That's true. I hadn't thought about it quite like that. I do know <laughs> people will be disappointed. Uh, either they're not traveling. I, I know in my own family's uh, case, um, you know, we're not going to, to see my parents this year. Uh, we will see them virtually as we do quite often throughout the week when they talk to their grandkids. But, uh, you know, it's going to be one of those situations where I think individuals uh, will, will have to make the, the decision. Um, and it's a decision that I, we frankly have to make almost every day, whether we're going to the grocery store or, or getting takeout. I mean, you just have to be a lot uh, very vigilant and careful in terms of all that you do. Uh, the good news is that we've had a couple of big breakthroughs with uh, vaccine news of late. Uh, of course, they're still months away for, for most Americans, but I think it just goes to show the speed at which, um, you know, the healthcare community is, is working to try to come up with a response and, and hopefully uh, put this, uh, this virus behind us. Uh, it's, of course, going to impact those who are more vulnerable in our mm-hmm. society. So, uh, you know, 
grandparents um, and, and others, you know, who who may have some pre-existing conditions. Um, I, I think families should have uh, should should understand if uh, if they don't necessarily want to uh, engage in Thanksgiving or the holidays in quite the traditional way. Uh, but let's find some other ways to make sure we keep keep those traditions alive and oh, so uh, and, and, and keep in touch with them because I think that 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 connectedness is so important for us. Yeah, Rob. One of the real victories uh, that came. Um, from the the election was that I saw 14 new pro-life women were elected to the House. That's that right. That was exciting uh, when I, I read that. It absolutely is exciting. I mean, you better believe it. And it is uh, it is one of the, uh, I think, more undertold stories of this this particular particular election. Uh, in fact, you know, I took a look at the the uncalled races today and there are still a you know, quite a few out there that uh, that could be added to that list of fourteen. But mm-hmm. there's uh, there's some other women who are in tightly contested races where not all the votes have been counted yet, and uh, and they could pull it off. And so we might be adding to that list. But it is a significant accomplishment, and I think it just goes to show that uh, n- not only are are you seeing more women step forward to run for office, but they're running up for, for office on on these these principles uh, because they believe in the sanctity of life. And I think it's so critically important for for the next generation to to look to them and see what is possible, and hopefully we can we can do some good with it and turn this uh, into some some strong policy at the federal level, or or hold back um, in some cases bad policy that uh, that. Some might want to perpetuate. Mm-hmm. Rob, I think one thing everybody can agree on is that we, we do need a change in our healthcare system. And certainly the, the, uh, the coronavirus has, has exposed the need for that, uh, for the reform. Um, how is Congress going to do that? W- what do you think their plan is? <laughs> it's a, it's a good question. There is, there is, a, you know, this problem that we, we have in, in Washington where it seems uh, we always wait until the last possible moment to try to strike a deal. <laughs> and, of course, you know, everybody kind of thought that before the election there would be an impetus on the part of, of both the Democrat-led House, Republican-led Senate, and the, and the White House to get something done. Uh, I think the most important thing that Congress can do is is look back and see what what has worked well already mm-hmm. and and how do we repeat that and avoid some of the mistakes? Uh, one of the things that we've said, uh, the Coronavirus Commission has said is targeted and temporary policies are the best approach to dealing with COVID-19. So in some cases, that means uh, programs uh, like uh, the Paycheck Protection Act, and uh, it could could mean other, uh, other in- instances where your government is providing the targeted relief uh, to, to employers or individuals that they, they might need. Uh, but what we don't want to do is throw a lot of money at the problem and, and really not address the core needs of individuals and what they are asking for. And I think that this would be uh, a smart time for lawmakers to listen to their constituents and see how they're struggling and what they can do to help. Mm-hmm. Rob, I know um, there is a Supreme Court case right now regarding foster care. Would you talk about that? I think that's going on in Philly. That's right. Well, this battle over foster care has has been an issue that uh, that we've seen play out um, uh, not just recently, but uh, you know it is uh, it is something that you know we um, we have been fighting for at the Heritage Foundation and covering at the Daily Signal. My gosh, Bill! It seems since uh, we created the Daily Signal uh, more than six years ago, uh, religious liberty has been constantly under attack uh, in our country, and too often it's uh, the situation that uh, foster parents find themselves right in the center of it. 
uh, the city of Philadelphia has threatened uh, foster care or organizations um, by telling them uh, and telling foster parents specifically that they can't work with Catholic social services because of the organization's belief that marriage is between one man and one woman. And the city and uh, and these foster parents have, have gone to, to, have taken the case to court um, in, in trying to get a, a decision and clarity on, on what comes next. I think it's an important case because it, it ex- the, the decision here could extend to any number of, of, of different uh, options that uh, the religious organizations might offer. And this is one case where there are children out there who, who need a home. There are foster parents who are willing to give them a home. And I think it's really sad that a city government would step in and try to get in and meddle in, in the middle of it. Uh, the, the Catholic Social Services obviously um, abides by you know, a, a certain set of, of principles and uh, religious beliefs uh, and teachings. And I think that uh, this country was founded with that in mind. Uh, the, we, we can't forget the, the what, what our founding uh, founders told us about religious liberty and its importance. They enshrined it right there in uh, in the First Amendment. And so let's um, let, let's keep a close eye on this particular case because I think it could have nationwide implications. It's not just in Philadelphia where this has become an issue. Uh, it's happening in other places as well. Mm-hmm. Rob, I, I haven't been following the news too carefully lately, but I think to myself, I don't have to do that because I have Rob Bluey. So <laughs> um, has the Affordable Care Act gone in front of the Supreme Court yet? It did. Okay. Uh, the Affordable Care Act went before the court, uh, before all nine justices, including our newest justice, Amy Coney Barrett. Um, and uh, it was an interesting uh, hearing because you know, much has been made of the fact that conservatives supposedly have a six to three majority on the court. Of course, anybody who closely follows the court, as, as you and I tend to do, knows that it doesn't always work out that way. It's not like right. a uh, a conservative brings a case to the court and they automatically uh, rule six to three. In some cases, they've been able to attract uh, some liberal votes. Uh, you re- might remember the um, uh, the case of the the baker from Colorado from a couple of years right. ago. I believe that was a seven two decision. Wow. Um, in which uh, in in which you had a couple of liberal justices crossover. Um, and so in this particular case, uh, I think that the interesting thing was that two of the people who seemed to cast doubt on this argument for overturning Obamacare were the Republican appointed justices, uh, both John Roberts, who was an appointee of George W. Bush and Brett Kavanaugh, who was an appointee of President Trump. And so um, what's at stake here is the, the Republican attorneys general who brought the case say that because the individual mandate, which was a signature part of Obamacare, Mm -hmm. um, was unconstitutional, the entire law must be struck down as a result of that. Um, Bill, it's important to remember here that we've been calling for years for Congress to take action on this. They had an opportunity in the first two years of uh, of President Trump's first term. Uh, They failed to do so. Uh, Remember, it was that deciding vote by John McCain Mm -hmm. when he gave that famous thumbs down uh, and voted no uh, when when they were unable to get that across the finish line. And so I think that in this case, they're trying, they're looking for another avenue uh, to do this. Uh, The good news is that there are alternatives to Obamacare. Uh, of course, there are alternatives that you hear about a lot on the left, things mm-hmm. like Medicare for all and the public option. But uh, I don't think that those are going to serve the public very well. And I think it's going to create more situations like we've seen with uh, the Little Sisters of the Poor, uh, 
the group of nuns who have argued cases before the Supreme Court where their rights are infringed. And so what we've done at the Heritage Foundation is is put together a plan called Healthcare Choices, and we want to do just that. We want to give the American people the choices that they deserve to make decisions about their own health care. We want to lower premiums. We want to give them more options. We don't want to, we want to do the exact opposite of what a government-run system would do, which would be to limit all of those things. And so uh, a lot uh, a lot will be um, at stake here in the Supreme Court case. It's, it's too soon to predict a result. I think that the oral argument suggested that they're not likely to overturn Obamacare, but that does not mean the work is done. Uh, this is an issue that I expect uh, whoever is our next president to to make a centerpiece of uh, of the focus in the years to come, because the American people consistently cite health care as one of the top issues facing America. Mm-hmm. Rob Louis, my guest, executive editor of The Daily Signal. We're going to take a little break. We'll be right back. If you have a question for Rob, let me know what it is. 877-933-2484. That's the text line, 877-93-FAITH. Or you can also email me, bill at myfaithradio.com. We'll be right back. Back with Rob Bluey, executive editor of The Daily Signal. Head over to dailysignal.com. You'll find wonderful reporting there. There's lots of uh, great um, stories and articles, and you'll get uh, a lot of truth over it. Dailysignal.com, which I I like. So, uh, Rob, I think there's a whole lot that we can learn when it comes to um, forest management from our Native Americans. That's that's true. Uh, thank you for bringing up that story. Yes, um, we we do have a piece on this from uh, from our our colleagues at uh, at the Daily Signal and Heritage Foundation. Uh, you know, Nick Loris is somebody who I've worked with for a number of years. Uh, he he is a, a has a tremendous amount of knowledge on energy and the environment, and um, you know he he puts forward in this this piece um, that uh, you know there are are a number of things that we can learn as. As we could on any number of issues uh, uh, from from history and and those right. for us particularly Native Americans, and uh, and every year, Bill, it seems that we are confronted with uh, greater and stronger wildfires that, uh, that that have just wreaked havoc on so many Americans, particularly in the West, and uh, and you know there's a lot of factors that contributed uh, to to that. Um, and some things that we could probably be doing differently if government got out of the way and and led to a, a situation. Now, I'm not I'm not denying that you know we've had a, a hotter and drier climate. That, right. That's certainly the case. Uh, but there are some things that government has done that have has made the problem worse uh, by by stopping uh, you know the um, the. Uh, the clearing of the forests in a way that uh, that was previously done by those who came before us. So I I think that it's it's a good time to start doing that. Um, uh, the Forest Service estimates that there's an 80 million acre backlog in clearing and restoring uh, high risk timber plots, and so that just seems like anytime I hear about governments that have a backlog, I mean it's just so frustrating. It seems like this is an, a great opportunity for Republicans and Democrats. It's not a partisan issue at all to come together uh, for the betterment of our environment and for for the sake of all those who are affected by this, and and, and look at solutions, um, and and let's figure out how to how to do. Things things better because 
the current situation is just not tenable. Yeah. Gregory Wrightstone wrote a great article in the Daily Signal about um, some of the um, millions in Africa that are, are really now in a place of extreme poverty. And some of them are just, they don't have access to fuel and electricity. And it's a little bit because of some of the green energy policies. That's right. Yes. Well, so, I mean, I think there's a couple of things here. First of all, we, we, we sometimes look at things differently when we talk about poverty in the United States. And when you compare it to those in, in other countries, and, and particularly the continent of Africa, I think that it, it helps to put things in perspective and how fortunate we, we are uh, in this country. And uh, it's not to say that there aren't those who are in need, and particularly in, in this holiday season, I think it's a time when, when, when many Americans uh, you know, reach into their pocket and, and generous, generously give. But let's not forget those who, who are in other uh, parts of the world um, who, who do face extreme poverty. And you're absolutely right that some of the, the energy policies um, have, have put these Africans in, in a pretty perilous position. Mm-hmm. Um, they, uh, they are in need of, uh, of so much. And uh, by putting restrictions in place that, that governments sometimes do, it causes more harm and unintended consequences, or maybe sometimes intended consequences, that, uh, that this new group, the CO2 Coalition, CO2 Coalition has put out and that we covered at the Daily Signal. So uh, the World Health Organization estimates that 3 billion people cook and heat and illuminate their homes with solid fuels. So that would be wood, charcoal, and dried animal dung. Mm. Bill, I mean, 3 billion people. Wow, I mean, that's, that's a, a staggering tremendous, number. Yeah, exactly. And I think we sometimes forget about that because of the way we live so comfortably here in the United States. But let's not do that. Uh, let's think about those who who are less fortunate than us. And, uh, and we're, when we're setting policies, particularly on a global scale, let's keep them in mind uh, that some of the things that, that we try to impose uh, don't necessarily cause harm. You know, a great example of, of this uh, is are things like um, uh, the Paris Climate Accord. Uh, of course, uh, you know, this is a, a big debate right now um, in the United States, uh, whether the United States should rejoin it. It, it appears we may be rejoining it. Uh, some of that is symbolic. Uh, but one of the things that goes unnoticed is that the United States has actually made some great progress, environmental progress, uh, without having to adhere to any kind of global compact. Right. Uh, we've just done it because we, uh, we've had the technology, we have the, 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 the private wherewithal. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's just amazing to think about what can be done when we put our minds to it and we don't have you know, some government overlords or, or, or a, a global body like the United Nations trying to put mandates on us. And so I think that we should strive to do these things. I think, again, it's not just like the forest fire issue. It's not a partisan issue. It should be an issue that we come together and work on, uh, Republicans and Democrats, liberals, conservatives, Christians, and all, you know, people of all religious mm-hmm. denominations. Uh, because ultimately, we want to we want to preserve this planet and pass it on to the next generation and, and the generation after that, and in, in a good condition. And so um, w- that we're committed to doing that uh, and, and covering those stories and, and and pointing out the truth, Bill. Yeah, I found this interesting that the mayor of Portland, Ted Wheeler, decided that um, the city council approved a removal of gendered language, meaning that feminine and masculine terms from the city charter would all be taken out. So is that does that bode well for free speech? 
<laughs> Probably not, because uh, you, you you know it's one thing to to remove them from the city charter, and then the next thing, you know, unfortunately, is sometimes a step where they start to punish those who don't abide by it, um, even in their in their private lives, and we've seen this happen in in, in other countries across the globe. Um, I, I I'm not surprised uh, that this is happening in, in a liberal city like Portland, but. It's um, it's concerning that uh, you know at a time when there are so many other issues that that, that we're struggling with, this is uh, this is that community's focus. Remember, uh, you know, this is an area that was ravaged uh, over the summer by by protests and uh, and riots, and uh, serious questions were being asked as to why why more wasn't being done with it. So. Um, you know, it's uh, it's one of those things where people, I think, will will always have the, an agenda that they're trying to to push. And we've seen you and I've talked about the stories of people who have teachers who've been fired because they didn't use the right gender pronoun, mm-hmm. and uh, and livelihoods that have been destroyed as a result of that. And I think it's really unfortunate that uh, that that's what uh, what we've come to in this country. And you're right; it does have big free speech implications, particularly. Um, if the the big tech platforms decide to really aggressively enforce this, we've already seen at the Daily Signal and the Heritage Foundation videos removed on this particular topic uh, because uh, they said that it's hate speech. Um, uh, YouTube in particular, I, I'm worried about it. Uh, they could shut they could shut you down and, and cut off your speech entirely. Yeah. Wow. Rob, one last question for you: Student loan forgiveness is that a policy that works for all Americans? Uh, probably not, particularly those who have saved for college and uh, have diligently paid off their loans. I understand that Americans are, are, are frustrated and uh, and the cost of, of a higher education is, I think, ridiculously expensive. I'd be happy to debate that with any higher yeah. administrator. But, um, you know, as, as somebody who has uh, three kids of my own and, and we put away money every month uh, for their college fund, just like my parents did for, for me and my brother, you know, I think that um, I, I think it's you know, and I realize that not every every family can afford it. So, uh, you know, there are those who have to take out loans and and run up a sizable debt, a debt just like our country has run up. And um, and and forgiving all of that uh, does strike a, a bit of unfairness. Um, there there could be other approaches to, to solving this issue uh, when it comes to higher ed. I'm not sure that this is one of them, though. Yeah, uh, how did how did higher education get so expensive? I think part of the problem, Bill, is that there has been uh, a bloat, an administrative bloat. There have okay. been more and more administrators hired, and uh, and it costs money to do that. And and you know, let's face it, uh, higher ed is a, is an area where uh, we've seen uh, tuition go up at a much quicker pace than than wages have have increased, and uh, and as a result of that, people are stuck with these big loans. Yeah, yeah, but it's uh, it's great to get a good education, and it's uh, well worth it. That's most. right. It, it is. And I'm, I'm fortunate uh, for mine. And I'm, I'm fortunate that so many Americans can, can take advantage of that. I think that um, in today's day and age, there are so many different options available for education, not only at the, at, at, at the college level, but just look at what coronavirus has, has done uh, to elementary and secondary education yeah, and, no kidding. Uh, and the different options for kids. So yeah. let's cheer them on. Yeah, indeed. Rob, thanks so much. Have a great rest of the week and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Bill. You, you as bet. well. Thanks so much. Rob Blue has been my guest. And as you know, he is the executive editor over at The Daily Signal. If you head to dailysignal.com, you can go check it out. We'll be right back with Dr. Greg Borgon.
So nice to be back with Dr. Greg Borgon. He is a um, friend and a, a professor right here at the University of Northwestern, although he has taught all over. And how many places have you taught, Greg? Let's say oh my. <laughs> several places. 15, maybe? Maybe even a little more than that. Okay. I think. All right. So today we're going to chat about the subject of heaven. And I love that topic because I'm utterly and completely fascinated by it. Well, you know, it's interesting how this came about. I do my devotions with my grandson and his friend every Sunday. And and this last Sunday, I decided, I'm, you know what, we, we really do need to talk about heaven. And instead of all the chaos we're feeling every single day or seeing every day or experiencing every day, it's nice to remind ourselves where we're going and what's going to be happening there. And so I put together a number of questions for them to ask and gave them an option to select two. And so that uh, took up our time and it was a wonderful experience. So uh, today I thought that might be a great subject to help people understand that they may be burdened by what's happening in the world today, but this isn't the world tomorrow. Uh, There's going to be a new world. We are citizens of another kingdom. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So let me ask a couple questions uh, off the top of my head. Are we going to experience time in heaven? I mean, I would assume yes, but I'm going to let you answer it. Well, you know, it's interesting when we, when we talk about time um, in heaven, God himself speaks as Jesus has about progression of time. And uh, I'm going to get to that, that issue. And there is going to be a marking of time. Even though God is not bound by time, we're going to experience time. And time will pass over the sense of eternity. So the whole idea is that we're going to uh, progress through a process of learning. We come into heaven with a, uh, a certain amount of knowledge, limited, of course, by our darkened understanding, limited by sin. But when we're in heaven, we'll not be limited any longer, but we're going to come into heaven with a certain amount of information that we gathered while we are here on earth. And so there's going to be a period of learning over time. Aren't and we going to be like Jesus when we get to heaven? We will in bodily form, but we won't know everything because we're still, uh, we aren't fi- uh, infinite. Uh, only, only Jesus is, is infinite. So um, we're going to be experiencing um, a progressive understanding as God, it says he's going to unwrap uh, over the course of time uh, his his knowledge, and so here we have an infinite God will never plummet, even in eternity. Right, never very... plummet the depths of the infinite. So He's going to be revealing Himself to us throughout all of eternity. Absolutely. So there's going to be like new surprises every day, maybe. Well, there is, and it, <laughs> it depends on our inquisitiveness, you know. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of what uh, we want to learn, and and the the many avenues we'll have to um, find out information that we've always wanted to know. And uh, but the the neat thing about that, Bill, is we're not going to be limited any longer by capacity. We're going to be able to learn more rapidly because we're not inhibited again by sin or a isolated understanding of certain things. So, a timeless God creates us to be in His timeless kingdom, but somehow we'll understand time 
in some capacity. I mean, even if we're listening to amazing music in heaven, music is based on time. <laughs> sure, sure um, it is. Notes are based on time. So we'll we'll have a, an understanding of all of that, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Well, we, let, let me let me exp- explain it a little bit okay, further. Okay, that'd be nice. Uh, Benjamin Franklin reminded us that time is the stuff life is made of. Uh, our earthly existence is marked by time. We waste it, we spend it, we save it. Uh, we have time on our hands. We make up for lost time and so forth. Um, let's be clear that when we say heaven, we're referring to the dwelling place of God. Um, it says in Revelation chapter 21, beginning with verse 3, it says, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. The chapter again goes on to describe a new Jerusalem where believers will dwell for eternity. So some argue that we will not experience time in heaven Mm -hmm. because we're told the city does not need the sun or moon Mm -hmm. to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light. Yeah. And the lamb uh, is its light. The cycle of the day and night is done away with perhaps the signals that signals the end of time or at least our measurement of time. Also, we know that God exists apart from time, so perhaps those dwelling with him will also be outside of time. However, others point to what seems to be clear references to experiencing time in heaven. For instance, in Revelation 8.1, it says, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. It's interesting that they would use that phrase, half an hour. Was the half an hour simply John's measurement of the period of silence from an earthbound perspective, or did the residents of heaven also realize the passage of time? So those in heaven appear to be aware of the passage of time on earth, and they may even describe it as long. According to Revelation 6, 9, and 10, it says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, listen to that, how long, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, will you judge until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? So without a doubt, how long is is a time-related reference? These examples occur prior to the eternal state, but they they may support the idea that time factors into our existence uh, in the dwelling place of God. And in Revelation 22, beginning with verse 1, speaks of a new Jerusalem. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the land down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. Hmm. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. There will be no more night. There, will ne- uh, there, there won't need to be light or a lamp or the light of the sun, for, as it says, you know, for God is, is our light. And they'll reign with him forever and ever. So the mention of every month and forever and ever indicates the passage of time. Mm-hmm. So we can derive from that that there will be a sense of the passage of time, what increments or how that's going to be laid out. We don't know yet. Yeah. But there does seem to be a progression of time. That is real interesting. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to think about that one. Um, so will... Th- People, um, will, will we 
able to see and know our friends and family members in heaven? Will, will we know each other? Well, that's, that's an interesting question. If you remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is transfigured and two people join him. Right. Moses and Elijah. Yeah. Peter, stumbling as he does because he often acts before he thinks, well, should I, I, I build a, an abode for both Moses and Elijah? For some reason, he was able to identify that they were Moses and Elijah. Interestingly enough, he had never lived during that time, right. but he was able to recognize them. Yeah. And so there are other indications in Scripture that there will be a way to recognize um, in terms of, of, of people that have gone before us. What I've heard in, in many uh, uh, cases is that we will have the ability to go ahead and recognize our loved ones. Now, it may very well be that a loved one has passed when we were young in life, and then when we finally pass, we're older in life. The question is, how will we appear to them? One scholar thought that we'll appear to them at the same age as when they knew us. Hmm. But I think it's even larger than that. We'll just be given, Bill, the ability to recognize our loved ones. Mm -hmm. When I go to heaven, um, when I pass and I go to heaven, I know there's going to be a host that will be there to welcome me, people that I've known and that I've loved that have gone before me. I'll be able to recognize them, I have no doubt, and they'll be able to recognize me. Yeah, and won't, won't everyone in heaven be our loved ones? Because this is the family of the redeemed, right? Sure, I think yeah. that we'll have, just like Peter, had the ability to recognize people who have gone right. before us, maybe centuries before us, and we'll be able to recognize them. We won't know all about their life because, as I said, when we get into heaven, we come in with a finite amount of knowledge that we've gained prior to death, and we'll be learning and growing. We'll be interviewing people, I suspect. That's going to be so much fun. I'm going to spend a lot of time, regardless of what we consider to be time in heaven, talking to people I've wanted to talk to all my life. Oh, it'd be fascinating. Spectacular. So what is, is there going to be um, food in heaven? Say yes. <laughs> well, it says that uh, we are going to be a part of the marriage feast of the Lamb. Okay. Uh, we saw that when Jesus uh, appeared to the apostles, uh, he came in bodily form and substance, and he had something to eat. Okay. And so there's no reason not to believe that we're not going to be eating in heaven. Or why would there be a tree with 12 fruits that gave their fruit every month? Yeah. Different fruit every month. So what... It's going to constitute the menu in heaven is open to question. But the fact is, is that part of fellowship and an enjoyment is, is a good meal around friends and loved ones. So I anticipate, based on the few references we have in Scripture, that we will have an opportunity to eat. Um, he will be our complete sustenance. We may not need it to sustain our uh, life there but we certainly will be able to do it for enjoyment. I'm, I'm anxious to find out what those 12 fruits on those <laughs> and that tree is going to be. What an amazing tree. <laughs> yeah. So, Greg, if we have these resurrected bodies, will they have like a, um, a physical appearance similar to the physical appearance we had on, on earth? Or Well, you know, in, in, is, in uh, um, 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about what our, our heavenly bodies will be like. They'll be incorruptible. Right now, we live in a corrupted body. Mm -hmm. We age. We suffer from disease. Uh, we bring some of that disease on ourselves. But that'll no longer be a hindrance in heaven. 
it says we'll be given a heavenly body, much like that of Christ, it says in Scripture, who had, you could see him, people um, knew who he was for the, the 500 times that he revealed himself after the resurrection. They recognized him in the upper chamber on the road to Emmaus. He was recognized eventually, but he had a corporal or a, the appearance of a body, but the body is going to be a different type of a body, according to Paul. It's a body that um, is going to be, as, as he said, I can't think even a better term of incorruptible, but it will be something that will be seen. Now, when we die, what happens is we go to be heaven or this waiting place before the new heavens and the new earth is, is created by God at the end of the age. Um, but our souls or our spirits, the essence of who we are, the bodily resurrection takes place at the final uh, judgment, the final uh, resurrection. Mm-hmm. That's when the, our soul uh, and spirit are joined in a bodily form, but it'll be a heavenly form. Mm-hmm. And so I've always wanted to be about six inches taller. I wonder if I can go ahead and go down through a list like you can at some of these restaurants. Be nice. Look, I want this hair. I want these. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be nice. <laughs> no, we'll have a physical body, uh, a body, at least a corporal body that, that can be seen, can be touched like Jesus was able to be touched by Doubting Thomas. Mm-hmm. Got a whopper of a question that just came in. You're going to love this one, but we'll address it after the break. Okay. Dr. Greg Borgon is my guest. You can go to heartofawarrior.org to learn more about Greg. We'll be right back. Greg Borgon is my guest. You can go to heartofawarrior.org to learn more about Greg and his powerful ministry. And here's a whopper of a question, Greg. Um, In heaven, will we forget the unsaved loved ones? Well, let me answer it in this way. I'll address from the perspective of uh, tears in heaven. The question begs another question is, will there be sadness because of those that didn't receive Christ and that we'll never see again. So the Bible never specifically mentions tears in heaven. Jesus speaks of rejoicing that takes place in heaven when one sinner repents. The Bible says that even now those who believe in Jesus are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. So if our earthly lives are so characterized by joy, what must heaven be like? Surely heaven will be much more joyful place. By contrast, Jesus describes hell as a place of weeping mm-hmm. and gnashing of teeth. So after a cursory look at Scripture, it seems tears will be a part of hell's domain and heaven will be tear-free. The promise of God has always been to take away the sorrow of people and replace it with joy. Weeping may stay for the night, according to Psalm 35, but rejoicing comes in the morning. And those who sow with tears will, re- uh, will reap with Songs of joy, according to Psalm 126.5. As in all else, Jesus is our model for this. Our Lord is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorned its shame. And uh, Jesus weeping gave way to joy. So there comes a time when God will remove all tears from his redeemed ones. It says in Scripture, he will swallow up death forever. 
the sovereign Lord will weep, will wipe away all the tears from our faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from the earth. The Lord has spoken. The Apostle John quotes Isaiah's prophecy as he records his vision in heaven in Revelation 7, 17. At the very end of time, God fulfills his promise. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. At the very end of time, God fulfills that promise. So what's interesting is the timing of the event. Mm -hmm. It happens after the great white throne of judgment. That's where non-believers are going to be judged for what they've done in the flesh. And after the creation of the new earth and the new, uh, the new earth and the new heavens. So consider this: if God wipes away every tear after the new creation, that means that tears could still be possible up to that point. Mm-hmm. It is conceivable, though by no means sure, that there are tears in heaven leading up to the new creation. Tears in heaven would seem out of place, but here are a few times in which. We could speculate that tears might fall, and that gets to the question mm-hmm. of the... Uh, About the unsaved. Yeah. Uh, the first one, at the judgment seat of Christ, which is for all believers, believers will face a time when the quality of each person's work is going to be tested. It hasn't anything to do uh, with eternal security. It has everything to do with what we've done in the faith, and as we've talked in the past before, God's expecting an ROI, a return on his investments. Um, so, and he... he, he uh, his, he, uh, he whose works are found to be, as it says in Scripture, wood, hay, and stubble, will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as escaping, it says in Scripture, as through the flames. Suffering the loss of a reward will certainly be a sad time. Mm-hmm. Could it be a time of tears in heaven as we realize how much more we could have honored the Lord? Perhaps. The second instance, during the tribulation, After the fifth seal is broken, the persecution of believers during the uh, tribulation intensifies. That's at the three-and-a-half-year mark. Mm -hmm. Many are slain by the beast or the Antichrist. These martyrs are pictured in Revelation 6 as being under the altar in heaven, waiting for the Lord to enact vengeance. They, They called out loud in a loud voice, How long? There's that time reference again. Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. These souls are in heaven, but they still remember the occasion of their death, and they seek justice. Could these individuals be shedding tears as they keep vigil? Well, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Here's the third instance. At the eternal doom of loved ones, which goes directly to the question, I think. Assuming that people in heaven have some knowledge of what happens on earth, it might be possible that we will know when a loved one rejects Christ and passes into a godless eternity. Mm. This would be a distressing knowledge, naturally, of course. During the great white throne of judgment, will those in heaven be able to see the proceedings? And if so, will they shed tears over those who are damned, perhaps? Again, we're we're speculating here. There is no biblical mention of tears in heaven. Heaven will be a place of comfort, rest, fellowship, glory, praise, and joy. If there are tears, for the reasons that we've just discussed, They'll be wiped away in the eternal state. Mm-hmm. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And he who has seat, who is seated on the throne said, I make everything new. Wow, that's really powerful. Another question came in from JC. She said, uh, what will my personality be like in heaven? That's really an interesting question. Yeah. I mean, how, 
What is that going to be like? Well, before, what's, what's the name of the, the person? JC. JC, be, before you ever came to be, God superintended your formation in your mother's womb. He knew you before you ever were. And so he set the number of days you would walk this earth. And as we've talked about in the past, you're not a mistake, a happenstance, or a coincidence. Now, under God's perfect will, you came into this world with certain talents and abilities, a personality temperament. So the temperament, your personality does not go away. Peter will be Peter. <laughs> He'll still be impetuous, but in a loving way. Yeah. Paul will be the methodical thinker. And so our personality temperament is a part of our spirit. And it's our spirit that goes to heaven and as a, in, a, in a holding place, actually, before our bodies are resurrected with our spirits. But in that spirit is our personality temperament. So... I believe that we are going to have our personality temperament. It won't be flawed. And if you really take a look at temperament profiles, um, you can see that they can be abused. But in this case, we're not going to be limited any longer by sin. The full flower of who God wired us to be in our personality will take flight in heaven. Thanks for that. All right. Um, How about this? Are there different levels of heaven? Interesting. Like, are there three heavens? I, we hear about that. So. Well, the three heavens that Paul is really referring to, he said he was caught up into the third heaven. And um, most biblical scholars understand that to mean that the first heaven is the sky. Mm-hmm. The second heaven is the space. And the third heaven, on a different plane altogether, is the spiritual heaven. That's the one that Paul was caught up to. So... There, it doesn't say like in Dante's Divine Comedy where there are nine different levels of heaven and, and hell. That's not biblical at all. And so there are different levels of heaven only in terms of sky, space, and the spiritual realm on a different plane. But heaven is in that spiritual realm. So there are not three levels of heaven. The top level being for really holy people. The middle level for being so, so, so holy people. (laughs) And the lower level being for people that had got in by the skin of their teeth. No, that's not biblical at all. I didn't think so. Um, I appreciate uh, this talk of heaven. I know it excites a lot of listeners um, because I've already gotten a bunch of comments. So um, the biggest question before we leave is who will get to heaven? (laughs) Those who receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Till the time God calls you home... And nobody knows that date, the number of days he set for us. We have opportunity over and over again through the Holy Spirit who convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to make a decision, a volitional decision to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. That's the only criteria for getting into heaven. If you choose not to bend your knee and receive Jesus prior to being, uh, to dying, it's you don't get a second chance. There is not a second chance to make that declaration. So those who receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, for all they know him to be at that particular moment in time, are going to be those who are going to in- inherit heaven. And Bill, before we, we go, let me just whet the appetite, if Please. I could. Please, yeah, yeah. By running down um, some key truths about heaven, which could take further explanation, but I'm just going to run down them. Is that okay? Okay. Have one minute. Heaven is real. Heaven is a real place. Heaven is God's throne. God will be present. Jesus will be present. There are many rooms in heaven. Heaven is, uh, is the believer's eternal home. 
It's without sickness, death, or pain. It's a restored Garden of Eden. Heaven is found 276 times in the New Testament. Um, the destination of the Old Testament saints who died trusting God, uh, promise of the Redeemer, are in heaven. Paul visited heaven, and John saw heaven. Heaven is, has no night, sun, moon, or and no lo- and is no longer needed. The city is filled with the brilliance of costly stones and crystal clear jasper. Heaven has 12 gates. And what we talk about heaven, Bill, we're talking about a new heaven and a new earth, according to Revelation 20, 21. And so it's not we're going to be floating around in the sky somewhere or on another plane. We're going to be living here on earth in the capital of earth will be, as Scripture says in Revelation, the new Jerusalem. That's amazing. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm excited to see what it's going to be like. I mean, I can't wait. Well, I'm kind of glad that God didn't give us a lot of insight. Yeah. Uh, because we'd be living with our bags packed waiting for Christ to call us <laughs> home. If we just had a glimpse. Instead we would... of in, in doing what God's called us to do, yeah. which is to minister to a fallen exactly. world. Exactly. Thank you for doing this, uh, Greg. I've loved this uh, discussion. It's something I, I would like to talk about all the time. <laughs> you know, we should talk about it more. Yes, Heaven. we should. It's a great topic. All right, Dr. Greg Borgon has been my guest. And you go to heartofawarrior.org if you want to learn more about Greg. We're going to take a little break, and uh, hour two is just ahead. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.